0: I'm Michael Mossback, a director of the Social Affairs Unit. Uh, the, we've, got three, we've got three British papers this afternoon: uh, Douglas Carswell, then Jeremy Black, then Daniel Johnson. Uh, we'll start off with Douglas Carswell. For those who don't, uh, we're on the subject uh, today, obviously, populism and its critics, and the Conservative response to populism. Uh, Douglas is the only speaker today who is. Uh, been a practitioner, so to speak. He's uh, been a Conservative politician, and then uh, moved from the Conservative Party to to UKIP, uh, one of the parties mentioned this morning. And twice, uh, twice stood stood for election for them, and twice got elected. So he's the only one who's uh, got practical experience of, of politics and uh, popular. I mean, he'd be seen as being on the, let's say, the the, the non-populist wing of a populist party. When he, was active in, when he was active in that
1: party. But
0: anyway, <laughs>
1: Douglas. Wonderful, thank you very much. Um, thank you for inviting me to take part in uh, this uh, special day. And um, thank you to both Michael and uh, Roger for asking me to present a, a, a paper. Um, for most of human history, most people have been uh, poor. Um, and they remained poor really from one generation to the next, either at or just above a subsistence level of, uh, Uh, a a subsistence um, standard of living. According to Angus Madison's Contours of the World Economy, for most people over the past uh, 3,000 years, there was very little change in global per capita income. Certainly until about 300 years ago, um, people remained pretty constantly poor. The average person living in 1,500 BC would have had a similar standard of living to someone living in about uh, uh, 1,500 A.D., of course, there, there would have been incremental technological improvements, the transition from, say, bronze metalworking to iron metalworking, or um, improvements in better farming techniques. But any rises in output that there were for most of human history were offset by increases in, in the population. As the academic uh, Gregory Clark puts it, sporadic technological advances produced people, not wealth. Or as economists might put it, growth was extensive not intensive. So for most of human history, people were in a Malthusian trap. And they only really started to escape that, in aggregate, around about the time that poor Dr. Malthus published his singularly ill-timed thesis. Up until the moment he published it, it had pretty much been true. This great escape from the Malthusian trap required output to increase faster than the population, which meant rises in productivity, the division of labor, and specialization and exchange. Now, before 1700, very, very few societies had achieved the conditions that allowed productivity improvements, greater division of labor, and more specialization exchange. If uh, those of you who are familiar with um, the book Why Nations Fail by Akamoglu and Robinson, um, you'll see from that book they show how societies have actually tended to stagnate when very powerful elites were able to rig the system, and elite-rigged societies were, for most of human experienced the norm. They existed in the river valleys of the Nile, the Euphrates, the Yangtze, the Indus for centuries. Well, if prosperity was exceptional pre-1700, there are, I think, three standout societies pre-1700 that were exceptional in having the conditions that allowed for intensive economic growth. And I would argue they were the Roman Republic, um, the Venetian Republic, and the Dutch Republic. Now, to be sure, there were other societies in which great riches were accumulated in the courts and harems of of emperors, often vast riches. But those riches were accumulated by redistribution. It was really only in these three republics that there was a genuine move towards intensive economic growth and prosperity, um, which flickered in these republics briefly in a a world that was otherwise dominated by Malthusian gloom. And I think it's worth examining this in a little bit more detail. When we think of Rome, we often think of Rome as, as an empire. We think of her achievements as an imperial machine, winning battles, crushing enemies, extracting plunder. I think a lot of this overshadows the Roman Republic's achievement in terms of economics. Between 300 BC and 14 AD, the population of Italy roughly doubled, output in Italy roughly quadruples. There was intensive growth. Economic records are, for obvious reasons, pretty patchy, but there is strong evidence of increased trade, a unified market that allowed regional specialization, and the gains of comparative advantage that that implies. There was the mass production of bricks, earthenware, tiles, all sorts of products in a mass market. As Peter Thiemann has said, the Romans lived well, better than any large society before the Industrial Revolution. There's even some suggestion that an Italian laborer in the 16th century still hadn't acquired the standard of living enjoyed by ordinary people living in the Italian peninsula um, 1,500 years before. There was a Roman bourgeoisie, an urban autonomous producer interest. In Venice, in the Middle Ages, from the 11th to 14th century, there was also intensive economic growth. John Julius Norwich described Venice as the richest and most populous commercial centre of the civilised world. What started as a fishing village by 1050 had a population of about 45,000 people. Um, By 1,200, it had swelled to about 70,000. By 1,300, it was about 120,000 people. Standard, living standards had had, had risen and Venice had an achievement out of all proportion to her size. Indeed, she was able to marshal the resources that made her able to take on states with vastly greater size than her. On the other side of Europe, in another waterlogged republic, um, the Dutch Republic, um, again, we see the flourishing of prosperity. In three generations in the 17th century, the Dutch achieved a per capita increase in excess of all the increases in previous generations in in history. In 1500, Dutch per capita income was at a European average, which incidentally was below that of the late Roman Republic. By 1600, per capita income in the Netherlands had doubled. By 1700, it had doubled again. The Dutch had the first Industrial Revolution, albeit one that was fueled by wind and peat rather than coal and steam. So what, what was special about these states? What was different about these states? What was it about them that enabled them to have intensive economic growth? It it wasn't the natural resources. Um, There were very few natural resources. We can forget about a sort of environmental, or ecological, deterministic explanation. They were pretty inauspicious spaces, places. But they had three things in common. They were all independent. The Romans famously preserved their independence against all comers, Celts or Carthaginians. Venice was independent not just by virtue of its lagoon, which protected it more effectively than any wall. But Venice also started life notionally as part of the Byzantine Empire, thereby keeping it outside the clutches of the Holy Roman Empire, which was sort of the European Union of its day. Um, The Dutch, of course, famously revolted, driving out the Habsburgs, the European Union of the 16th century. The second thing these republics all had in common, being republics, no surprise, they, they all had freedom not just from external tyrants, but from internal ones. Um, power in all three republics was dispersed. The Roman Republican Constitution meant that power was dispersed between different elected magistrates, the Senate, there were obviously two consuls each holding office for a term of one year. Perhaps the biggest constraint of all was the fact that the law was written. It was no longer what the priests and the elite decided it could be. Um, Venice was ruled by a doge and had an even more complex constitution with um, all sorts of curbs and constraints on power. And the Dutch, under the Union of Utrecht in 1579, meant that power was dispersed between seven different provinces and there was very weak central authority. The Stadtholder, like the Doge, had constraints on their power. They were all open to specialization and exchange and they prospered because of trade. Um, As we see in Why Nations Fail, um, it's very hard to rig the system at the behest of the elites in a system where the elite can't really monopolize and control power. But, of course, in all three states, we also know that the conditions that were conducive to intensive growth didn't last. There was an end to their exceptionalism. The Roman Republic faced a series of crises. It became an empire. It became a military machine that was into the business of plunder. The Venetian Republic became an empire, too, as did the Dutch Republic. Both the Venetian and the Dutch Republics acquired eastern possessions. The Venetian eastern possessions in the eastern end of the Mediterranean the Dutch Eastern possessions in the East Indies. Within those imperial possessions, they created estates that supplied on the basis of a, 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 a command rather than free exchange. In all three cases, Republican constraints were subverted by a sudden inflow of wealth from these provinces. Rome, once they acquired Sicily and Pergamum and elsewhere, there was a massive influx of, of slave labor, a, a huge influx of slave labor. This created or contributed to uh, the agrarian crisis and the freeholder republic of free farmers was replaced by a system of latifundi, giant commercial farming entities. Um, The um, riches of the provinces, they had these tax farming organisations called the Publicani. Um, it, It allowed a small elite within Rome to enrich itself disproportionately at the expense of the provinces. And a republic of freehold farmers gave way to incredible concentrations of wealth and power. And and this is what's interesting. This generated a political backlash. Perhaps the original populists, the Plebeian faction, the the Gracchi brothers, Tiberius and Gaius, um, were successively um, elected, well there's about a decade between the two of them, elected as consul. And they had an agenda that, um, I I hope you don't think I'm being glib, parts of the agenda seemed to sort of cross between what Donald Trump wants and what um, Jeremy Corbyn in, in Britain wants. Um, partly, they were very concerned. Uh, Tiberius Gracchus um, was, uh, so the story goes, awakened politically when he traveled through Italy and, and saw all this cheap foreign labor. Um, Jeremy Corbyn, the element uh, to his agenda was in favor of redistribution, breaking up the latifundi. And in 123 BC, um, they created, um, uh, Gaius Gracchus created for the first time the corn dole which was a system of redistribution um, in response to the agrarian crisis. This basically meant that the masses from that moment on shared with the elite the proceeds from plundering the provinces. It was no longer just members of the Senate who did rather well by extorting the provinces, that the the masses got their share in grain provided by poor farmers in Egypt as well. Um, This populist response was was to make Rome, it put it on a path to becoming what by the third century AD she had become, which was to become a, uh, an economic empty shell. Um, she produced very little and she lived off plunder. There's some evidence that by 400 AD, long before any, um, uh, the fall of Rome by barbarians, that living standards on the Italian peninsula have gone back to what they were 300 BC, 700 years previously. Um, there's very little evidence of any increase in per capita GDP in the first two centuries of empire. And it's striking, some authors say, how little innovation and invention there was during the Roman Empire as opposed to when Rome was a republic. In other words, the populist revolt didn't preserve the exceptionalism of what was then the greatest republic on Earth. You know, populism didn't save the republic. Venice, when we think of Venice today, we probably think of a, a gondola. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to Venice, but if you've ever been rowed in a gondola, you will be, have uh, been rowed by a, a gondolier. Uh, um, I think it's fair to say that gondolas and gondoliers are are the antithesis of everything that Uber is. Um, Prices are fixed, it's incredibly restricted. What what gondolas do when they do it, the terms under which they do it, indeed right down to what they're allowed to wear and the gender of the gondoliers is regulated. In other words, what we think of today as traditionally Venetian is not true to Venice's own traditions. What was once a freewheeling capitalist city um, you know, In its heyday, there was no guild of gondoliers. Gondol- being a, a member of a guild only became compulsory in the 16th century. Why did Venice go from being a capitalist, freewheeling city-state to a protectionist museum? Well, actually, we can date the beginnings of that political change with quite a lot of accuracy. In, once the territories to the east had been acquired, there was an inflow of wealth which created a, a, a closed oligarchy. And in the end of the 13th century, in effect, they launched a a constitutional coup. In 1297, there was the famous serata, the closure, which made membership of the great council hereditary. It became a closed shop. And from that moment on, the powerful in Venice tried to basically keep out new entrepreneurs. As in Rome, there was a backlash. There was a populist backlash led by a fellow called uh, Bagamonte in 1310. He was less sort of Donald Trump, Jeremy Corbyn. He was more a... Uh, I was gonna say South American strongman. Unfortunately for him he was very strong, but if he had been strong, he might have been a, a strongman. His coup actually failed, uh, unfortunately for him, and it prompted a consolidation of the um, uh, uh, oligarch's takeover. In 1310, power was concentrated in the hands of a council of 10. It was originally created for a six week period to cope with the crisis that Bagamonte's revolt had triggered. It ended up governing the Republic in effect for the next 600 years, concentrating power in the hands of 10 people. Five years later, the creation of the Gold Book, which was literally a list of people in the Republic who were allowed to hold public office. If you weren't on the list, you weren't allowed in. In 1325, galleries, the the, the galleys rather, were in effect nationalized. In 1324, there was a navigation law that stopped less established merchants from trading at all. Um, There was a system of sinecures created. Um, People were put on the public payroll, and this consumed a growing share of the Venetian state's budget. There was a class of what they called uh, uh, the Barnaboti, which were nobles who lived at public expense. Think of them today as the Venetian equivalent of all those who uh, earn a good living by presiding over the bureaucracy of the administrative state. And uh, Venice became increasingly protectionist. The Dutch, too, found that their 17th century boom came to a dramatic end. The first industrial revolution was followed by the first case of deindustrialization. Factories closed. Um, If you look at an index of Dutch industrial output, um, in 1584 it was at 100. By 1664 it had peaked to 545. By 1795 it was back down to 108. It was a pretty catastrophic deindustrialization. And there's a strikingly similar story which echoes what happened in Venice. In 1672 there was what's known as the year of disasters. There was an invasion, there was a failure of of statecraft. The leader of the Republican faction, Johan de Witt, um, proved himself to be hopelessly incompetent. He was uh, ineffective. He, no doubt, had he had a Twitter account, would have tweeted what he was going to do and failed to do it, and uh, he was discredited. It paved the way for a return of the the Stadtholder. There was a constitutional coup with the Orangist faction. Um, Think of them as the, 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 the Hillary faction of their day, coming back, and from that moment on, the Dutch Republic became just a, another European monarchy. Power centralized, taxes were raised, government overspent. And the creation, as in Venice, of a, what, what in the Dutch Republic were known as a Regency Rich, who lived off the patronage and the um, public purse. Um, now, in all three cases, the anti-oligarch insurgency failed to defeat the oligarchy. Um, populism didn't save any of these republics. In fact, as, as as Michael Anton noted in his comments last night, both the Grouchy brothers um, were killed, as was Johann de Witt. Bagamonte was a bit more uh, fortunate. He managed to escape into exile. Um, but they failed at a more profound level, too. They not only did nothing to stop the things that were driving the emergence of the oligarchy, I would say that they actually helped facilitate the emergence of, of oligarchy. Um, now, of course, many of those things that in the case of these three republics were considered exceptional pre 1700 have become more ubiquitous since. It's been a very gradual process. It's not just the Dutch who booted out their parasites. In 1776, famously the Americans kicked out their uh, parasites. Uh, More and more states have booted out um, parasitic elites and become self-governing. More power's been dispersed within states and you could almost argue that globalization is uh, the proliferation of specialization and exchange at at a global level. In other words, the conditions that permit specialization and exchange, which is the great driver of human progress, have become more widespread. And as a result, progress has become more widespread. Could could this stall? I would argue that we're already seeing the emergence of a a new oligarchy in many Western states. Um, The oligarchy today, in, in the past, oligarchy emerged when there was a sudden inflow of wealth, which allowed power to be concentrated. It upset the equilibrium in the body politic. The the sudden inflow of wealth that's happening today isn't coming from provinces. It's not coming from any exploited colonials. It's coming not from provinces but from posterity. It's coming from government's ability to borrow off future generations of of taxpayers. This has led to a sudden inflow of of wealth. Before 1971, the United States dollar was pegged to gold under Bretton Woods. The US government was committed to backing every dollar. Um, This limited the amount of dollars in circulation. And by extension, it also, you know, cancelling the convertibility of the dollar to gold um, removed constraints on the US government. It also, by extension, removed the constraints on many other Western states to spend money because they were pegged to the dollar. Governments since then have managed money in the interests of, well, of itself, um, the biggest borrower. And we've seen earlier how Romans, Publicani allowed cash to be spent up front by the Senate in return for a promise of a future slice of tax revenue. What we see today is pretty much the same with big banks and the bond market allowing governments to spend what they want today in return for giving someone a guaranteed slice of future tax revenue. Now, traditionally, for the past couple of hundred years, the idea of no taxation without representation has constrained the ability of of governments and, and states to do what they want. But when governments can borrow to facilitate what they spend, um, that constraint falls away. Um, Bond borrowing allows the traditional constraints of no taxation without representation to be subverted. Imagine what Charles I in England would have been able to do if he could spend money without having to raise ship money. He could have avoided that beastly business of the Civil War. And since the early 70s, we've seen Western states massively overspending. France has failed to balance the books since I think 1973. The UK's only managed to run a budget surplus in three of the past 36 years. The United States has accumulated gargantuan levels of public debt in the past 20 or 30 years. And this is what's allowed the creation of huge bloated administrative government. The Venetians and the Dutch had various vested interests who were on the public payroll, who benefited from the public payroll. We've got a huge class of people with a vested interest in higher public spending. Our equivalent of Venice's uh, 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 gilded elite, the Dutch Regency rich um, live at the public expense too. Now the direct consequence of all this extra spending is the rise of of the administrative state. And it's been funded without the need for tax increases. And because of that, um, it's not as accountable to voters because it doesn't require their permission to exist it's not accountable to voters for what it therefore does. Michael Anton noted um, yesterday how how populism's been fuelled by this sense that those who make public policy no longer meaningfully answer to the public. And on both sides of the Atlantic, I would argue we've we've seen in the past 30 or 40 years the creation of continent-wide federations in the US and the EU, presided over by a technocracy that's utterly detached from the concerns of of ordinary people. Um, Every year in in Davos, in, in Switzerland. Um, officials, executives, corporate bigwigs, people in, uh, working for federal government in the US and the EU in Europe attend the World Economic Forum. They spend this week at this week-long schmooze fest applauding each other for being so well-connected and marinating each other in the same groupthink. To use the words of the late Samuel Huntington, they, they view national boundaries as an obstacle that we're thankfully, um, that, that are thankfully vanishing. They see national governments as residues from the past whose only useful function is to facilitate the elite's global operations. This Davos man wants centralized supranational decision-making and has been getting his way for the past three or four decades. And he has an agenda that I would argue is fundamentally incompatible with democracy. Of course, the demos are starting to get a little cross. At the same time as all of this, easy money economics created at the behest of the elite has, I would argue, fueled inequality. Now, it's not so much income inequality. In Britain, the left tries to argue that uh, incomes have have diverged. Actually, if you look at the Gini coefficient in the UK, income inequality is at a 30-year low. But there is inequality between the value of assets as a consequence of easy money, whether those assets are a house or a hedge fund, and incomes. And it's it's this, for example, that means that housing is becoming unaffordable to anyone under the age of 40 in the UK, which is, I would argue, directly responsible for fueling the rise of Corbyn as a populist insurgent. A a couple of closing thoughts, if I I may. Um, How much do the populists today have in in common with the populists of the past? Now, Roger quite rightly earlier said, that there were some limitations to this idea that the populists of today are exact replicas of the populists of the past. Insurgent politicians today clearly, they, they play by the democratic rule book. Um, no question about that. Now their critics may resent their success and try to imply that there's something democratically illegitimate about, about what they do, but the political insurgents that we see in Europe and the United States are, are, are very much democratic players. Um, and, and I would argue that they're not at all like some of the um, populist insurgents that there were in in, in Venice or the the Grouchy. But at the same time, a lot of populist leaders, particularly in in Europe and in my experience of populist politics in the UK, are ever so slightly self-appointed, or or at least appointed by the television stations who give them disproportionate amounts of of coverage. And I would argue that they're actually quite harmful in many cases to the anti-oligarchy cause. When I I joined UKIP, the British equivalent of the uh, populist insurgency movement, the British variety. Douglas, um, okay, I just wanted to be sure I understood you. Did you did you say that um,
2: following the, the the Gracchi and you know other Roman populists like Marius and Julius Caesar, that <clears throat> Roman standards of, uh, of living fell in the early years of the empire?
1: Um, the evidence suggests. According to Madison, living standards peaked in about 14 AD. They stagnated in the first two centuries of empire, and they then fell precipitously thereafter. Yeah, I, you know, I wonder about that. Uh, Gibbon
2: says that uh, the best time to be alive in human history would be in this, the second century of, of the empire, it was stable. It was prosperous. I mean, I don't have the economic mm-hmm. figures, but just in my sense of it is that um, you know, after those decades of civil war, you know, uh, Sulla's prescriptions and Octavian's prescriptions, and uh, you know, then you had a, a period of uh, a long period yeah. of, of despite the insane emperors that uh, uh, punctuate Roman history. Of, of relative peace, and the crisis of the third century, of course, yeah. and everything collapses, yeah. but, uh, but I think the Gracchi were never consuls; with their tribunes of the pre- plebs. Yes, sorry, yeah. yeah,
1: correct. Chairman? They were directly elected by the yes. right, right.
3: I, no, I didn't. No, I, I enjoyed. Um, I enjoyed, I had no question about. about from, apart from being amused to discover that I am a member of a what, what is it? A representative of a corrupted academia. Right? I I have lots of criticisms of universities, but I would hate to see the entire corpus of academics all regarded as in some way corrupted by some original sin of liberalism.
1: I, I misspoke. I meant a few. A, a few. few <laughs> a few academics. No, a lot
3: of them. A lot of yeah. them. But uh, not just all, every single. One.
0: <laughs>
1: Jim. Well,
4: thank you for that history, a fascinating history. I, I, I did not know that there was so much economic dynamism mm-hmm. across Europe prior to the Industrial Revolution. Thank you. Let me go to cur- current times in debt. So you mentioned debt, uh, and it's not only government debt. I think cre- total credit market debt in the United States is uh, well over $60 trillion. That would be corporate debt, consumer debt, and government debt pretty much, and that is three to four times annual GDP. So we're carrying, I don't know, 60 plus trillion dollars of total debt on a GDP of 19 trillion. Up until about 1980, total credit market debt was pretty much equal to GDP. In a period of 30 odd years, it's now triple GDP. So you're correct, we're carrying an enormous amount of debt in the system and that has fueled the economic uh, expansion, especially in real estate and stock markets. The amazing thing, though, is that this uh, debt has exploded while interest rates and inflation have come down from where they were in 1980. So, you know, usually when you start accumulating debt, interest rates go up, and at a certain point, you develop some sort of a debt crisis. And we did a little bit in 2008. So, I guess just my question is how long can this go on? I mean, uh, to the extent that we have a a debt-fueled system and you can't continue to build debt on debt, interest rates can't get much lower. Mm -hmm. We've got a very benign inflationary environment. Uh, Can can, can this go on? It's it's actually
2: much worse than Jim says because then there's all the unfunded liabilities we have. I think it's really more like $130 trillion.
1: Uh, Western states have been living beyond um, the tax base for... uh, a generation or more, and they've accumulated a a huge amount of of, of debt. And there's no attempt to really conceal, um, if you listen to the former British Chancellor George Osborne, he he would quite openly say, we we need low interest rates because if interest rates go up, um, the cost of servicing public debt will go up, so we need to keep interest rates low. Um, I, I think as a consequence of easy money, low interest rates, there has been what Austrian school economists would call um, um, uh, malinvestment, a chronic misallocation of of credit. Um, I would argue that a consequence of malinvestment is reflected in all sorts of economic distortions, um, low savings ratios, overconsumption, particularly in the United States and the UK, um, distortions in our uh, trade um, export figures, Um, there there is going to be a a moment of of reckoning. I thought it would come sooner Um, after the 2007 crisis. I assumed that in my naivety, interest rates would go up. I thought that if you're a public policy maker and you're looking at the accumulation of public and private debt and you want to reduce the amount of debt, you make the cost of holding that debt higher. You put interest rates up and people get rid of the debt. That hasn't happened at some point I think you will you will see tighter interest rates and I think, um, I'm actually an optimist because I think when that moment comes, um, the unaffordability of the administrative state will become apparent and um, everyone will report it in the media as a bad thing, I think it'll be a thoroughly good thing. Um, when people realize that the public sector is unaffordable, we, we, we're gonna have to do less of it but quite when that unravels and unfolds, I, I, I don't know. What, just
4: a good question. What's the total government debt
1: in Great Britain? What's, what's your debt?
4: Um, we're, we're about 20 trillion on a GDP of about 19 or 20 trillion, about close to one to one. Some of it is owed internally
1: to the government. Yeah. i I'd need to look that up. I think I'm right in saying, it, I don't have the exact figure, but I think I'm right in saying it has doubled since 2010. It doubled basically. Um, under a conservative government. So, yeah,
0: it's doubled under <laughs> a conservative government.
5: Chris, yeah, thank you for that. I, a couple of well, a point maybe in a, in a that leads to a question. But uh, I thought about the long stagnation in the Dutch Republic, um, and then uh, and then in 1901 you had Abraham Kuyper elected prime minister, right? He was president of university, he had effective control uh, of uh, of the Dutch Reformed Church, had a newspaper, was prime minister, and that maybe played into your point. in, in some sense, that maybe could have been characterized as. A, a populist response, I mean, I'll try to uh, attempt to recapture um, the benefits uh, of, uh, of a, the benefits that the church played in the Dutch Republic at one point, uh, or gave the Dutch Republic at one point, but it failed. I and mean, we see the Netherlands now as something very different than what, um, what I think that Kuiper tr- uh, tried to recapture. And that just goes to your broader point, which is that uh, you have these populist uh, efforts that, that seem to uh, have historic, historically have set a precedent of actually empowering the oligarchies to which they are a reaction. And so my question is that the, the easy one, which is, okay, so what is the appropriate response to the oligarchy if not a populist revolt?
1: Um, I mean, I, I, I would argue that Dutch exceptionalism died with Johan de Witt. Mm-hmm. That was the end of the era of true freedom. And after that, the Dutch Republic became just another European monarchy. Although, interestingly, when the English had their revolution against um, unaccountable Stuart monarchs, because the English hadn't familiarized themselves with the workings of the Roman Republic, uh, Polybius I don't think had been translated, um, they weren't sure what to do to replace. uh, Once you've cut Charles's head off, what what do you do? Um, Eventually, they ended up importing a Dutch king, Um, I, I would argue because they had an they believe that Dutch monarchs at least had an appreciation of monarchical minimalism, um, and when the Americans had their revolution a century later, Polybius had been rediscovered. Um, people were much more familiar with the workings of the Roman Republic, which is why you built a, 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 a capital and a senate on the banks of the Potomac. Um, if only we had had our revolution a hundred years uh, later, or, or, or translated Polybius a century earlier, things would have been uh, better. But um, I, I, I think. If we want to tackle oligarchy, you need to tackle the source of its empowerment, which is wealth. It's the ability of the state and those who depend upon the public payroll to siphon off wealth through the bond market um, is ultimately what is fueling the rise of the administrative state. Um, I I think there are all sorts of, in, in my book, I, I uh, uh, outline some, some far reaching bank reform that I, I think would constrain the ability of doing it. But you know, if you are the government and you can spend what you want to spend by borrowing rather than by gaining permission from the people's representatives, you can spend without constraint. And that's the root cause of the growth of big government in Western states. If you want to argue that, you know, we need to persuade the public that they need less public spending, Um, I think you're probably on a hiding to nothing because if politicians can promise them something today and not have to worry about the fact their (coughs) great-grandchildren will pay for it, you're you're always going to lose the argument. We need to uh, change the ability of the state to spend wealth today based on giving someone a future slice of tax revenue tomorrow. Daniel. Yeah,
3: Yeah, I wanted to just sort of gently, I I don't pretend to to have your knowledge of these three cases. Uh, but to just gently ask one or two questions. I mean, in the case of Rome, um, this idealized picture of the Republic really is created by the writers of the early empire um, looking back. And it lasted that empire, as Roger already pointed out, rather a long time after the end of the Republic. and I think if you look at the evidence of culture, high culture, I'm going to mention that in the case of Venice and, and Holland too, um, the real peak does come actually in the early part of, of, of the Christian era. Um, you know, the great buildings and writers and, and of course a lot of the art and so on is lost. But so, um, I mean, it, it was an awful, to use I think Adam Smith's phrase, there was a deal of ruin in this empire, it took a very long time uh, to really go Um, if you look at Venice it's even more the case I mean you date the peak uh, of Venice um, the Venetian Republic around 1200 well that's just before uh, they effectively took over a large part of the Byzantine Empire um, which in turn fueled enormous wealth Um, and um, most of which flowed back. I mean, you, you know, most of the glory of Venice that we see today, a great many of the, the statues and things, were plundered from Byzantium. Um, but surely the, the real peak of Venetian wealth and, and, and certainly of high culture came quite a long time later in the 16th century. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, you know, the era of the great art from, you know, the Bellinis through to Titian and Tintoretto and so on. Um, I, 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 it does seem to me that that, that that I mean it was 600 years before the Venetian Republic was actually destroyed by Napoleon uh, after what you say was its, was its apogee um, now the Dutch phenomenon is much more short lived uh, but it has in common with the other two that what actually brought it to an end I don't think was populism uh, or even oligarchy that a clash with a rival empire, a, ri- a rival power, in, in, in the Dutch case, the British. I mean, the late 17th century is punctuated by a whole series of <laughs> naval wars between the British and the, and the Dutch, which ultimately ended with British dominance. And uh, the, the Dutch were simply pushed into the background. The same thing happened, really, with Venice. You know, they took on the Ottoman Empire, which had, uh, you know, usurp the role of the Byzantines, taken over their eastern provinces, and you know, for a little republic to take on what was then the biggest, most populous, uh, militarily strongest empire in the world uh, was 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 a bit too much. Um, uh, and in the case of the Romans, well, there wasn't one barbarian uh, power that destroyed it, but what did destroy it was open borders. I'm afraid it was it was uncontrolled immigration. Um, <laughs> Uh, which undermined what was distinctive about Rome. Um, so, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm just sort of, but can I just make one, one sort of more positive point, which is that the Dutch and the Venetians had in common, that, for a brief period at least, the period that you identify in the Dutch cases as, as, as the Golden Age, um, they were very tolerant of Jews. Um, you know, these, if you read Simon Sharma's new history of, of the Jews, uh, these two periods, Venice in the 16th century and Holland, uh, the Netherlands in the 17th century, stand out as periods of great Jewish uh, freedom and toleration and flourishing and wealth, um, despite the ghetto. That was a, a, a phenomenon. You know, we all know Shakespeare's um, Merchant of Venice. Uh, but what is remarkable is not that in the end the Jew is is uh, uh, is treated rather abominably, but that. It's a situation where Jews and Gentiles trade quite normally with each other and are, um, you know, Shylock is, is, is treated for commercial purposes as an essential part of the Venetian economy. And uh, if you look at Rembrandt's pictures, you know, a great many of them are of Jewish subjects. Um, it's the age of Spinoza. Uh, he comes actually a little bit after what you regard as, as, as the peak. Um, but all I'm saying is that, that a very important part of prosperity of, of these republics did come from their Jewish contribution and you know that's, that's why I think today we should view the rise, the return of anti-Semitism in Europe uh, not so much here but we do encounter it here on the campuses uh, as a very worrying development
1: If there's much of, of, of what you say is absolutely spot on, um, if you Judge the success of a society by the lavishness of the commissions that the elite give to artists. Then, without question, um, my time frame doesn't doesn't fit. I measured success by the ability to achieve intensive economic growth, rather than by the lavishness of, of courtiers. Um, in the Dutch Republic, there was, to use uh, Simon Schama's phrase, uh, an embarrassment of riches um, when the Dutch VOC was cheerfully extorting people in the East Indies. It was doing so in a way that created huge wealth for a tiny minority of people, and yep, they spent that money getting some of the greatest artists to produce some of the best art in the world. But unfortunately, that wasn't quite such a good thing for Dutch society as a whole, where per capita GDP fell rather precipitously. Uh, again, I'm sure the most lavish masked balls in Venice happened long after the oligarchy had taken over in 1297. In fact. Um, you probably had more lavish uh, masked bulls in the Venetian Republic when it was run by a, a, a non-republican clique. Um, it's in the nature of oligarchs to have glittering parties. Again, you know, the, you know Florence. You, you need you need people like the Medici's who can acquire vast amounts of wealth to commission great art. Um, but I I argue and I. I think I set out my, my, my terms early on, that I was looking at the ability of a society to create um, an increase in output um, faster than an increase in population. And without question, I think that that happens in, in the time frame that, that, that I described. I mean, people often argue, quite rightly, that there were some fairly catastrophic uh, mass movements of people in, 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 in Rome Um, uh, across the Danube from about uh, 360 AD. But if you look at per capita GDP in Italy, by 400 AD, before there's a barbarian army storming Rome, by 400 AD per capita GDP on the Italian peninsula is back to where it was in 300 BC, 700 years before. Um, That's before any, any goth turns up. So the extent to which Rome's innovation is arrested, the extent to which uh, its own parasitic elite um, achieve economic regression long before the barbarians turn up and fight over the corpse. Um, You know, we we shouldn't forget that. Um, Great emperors and and empires often have their heyday long after the secrets of their initial success, long after the exceptionism that that first elevated them has faded. I, I hope that's not true of the American Republic. I hope that, you know, America's great art over the next 100 years doesn't follow the the, the Roman or the Venetian or the Dutch trajectory. Um, Often Republican exceptionalism um, is not necessarily the same thing as uh, lavish commissioning. Yeah, thanks. If your argument's
0: right, we should be expecting a great outpouring of art in Russia and Saudi Arabia any time.
1: George. Yes, uh, uh, you used an interesting expression, a rather populistic-sounding expression, voodoo empiricism. And I wonder if you would exp- exp- expand upon that a bit. And s- secondly, the, um, when do we know? Is there a rule, so to speak? Or would you just address this a little? A rule for knowing when elites become parasitic are they always parasitic or do they become parasitic at some point in time related to expenditure or whatever? I'm just be curious if you have any thoughts on that. I I think, and this is not really my my idea, I'm borrowing from Matt Matt Ridley and others. I think there's a natural tendency of for humans to predate off of other humans. And if you look at some of those incredibly stable patrician societies in the valleys of the Nile, the Euphrates, the Yangtze, even even Mexico, they have some striking similarities. A small, priestly elite um, extorting usually between sort of 40 and 50% of uh, a, a mass. In effect, they're an elite that farms farmers. And um, um, what, what's interesting is the exceptions to that, where where you get a society where an elite, for various reasons, is not able to predate off the masses. Isn't it striking how, whether you're talking about Japan in the 14th century or Ming China or... India in the Middle Ages. The producer class is always regarded as ethically the lowest of the low. Um, The untouchables in India, the the, the merchants in Japan were regarded as as, as the bottom. Um, Maybe in history, extractive elites have had to create an ethical framework that legitimizes their extortion of the productive merchant class for a reason. Um, Voodoo empiricism. Um, I was very struck by David Deutsch, who's a a philosopher and a physicist at Oxford University. He's written a couple of books. One is called the. Um, 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 I'm trying to remember the name of it. Um, it it's, a, it's a. It'll come to me in a moment. He talks about um, empiricism and how, particularly in social sciences, um, there's a bogus empiricism. It's actually what he calls inductivism. Instead of people being true to empiricism, and having a, a theory and in an effect um, testing it. Uh, 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 like a, a, a scientist would with a clinical trial. Many many within social sciences, particularly in economics, he argues, practice a form of inductivism. They have a thesis and a hunch and they f- fish around for facts to support that. And they genuinely believe that they're taking an approach that is scientific, but it's actually a, a bogus empiricism. Um, and I think we see that you know, during the EU referendum, I was struck when the Treasury produced a report that purported to be able to tell the exact GDP outcome 20 years hence. Now, George Osborne's Treasury couldn't produce a report that could forecast GDP in 18 months' time. Just because a lie is contained within an Excel spreadsheet, we shouldn't believe that it's true. And yet, so much of social science is basically, I would argue, fraud inside a spreadsheet.